Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. <laughs> okay, this is going to be a little weird this week because we're having some technical difficulties and no matter what we do, we can't eliminate this weird delay that we're experiencing on this call that we have. So <laughs> we'll see how this conversation goes. But Nora and I are on a very strange delay right now between... Um, in our connection. That's right. So this episode is going to have a lot less uh, back and forth jokes, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see what happens. Maybe there will be more Nora jokes. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, beyond the, the fact that um, this connection sounds like you're living in in the midst of uh, some sort of robot hellscape, which might be better than this hellscape. Who knows? Mm. Uh, how are you today? I'm great. I'm great. My city just had for the first time uh, almost 100 cases uh, in Lettuce for the first time ever, not just since the pandemic, not just since the spring. And so, you know, I'm uh, I'm feeling like we're living in some sort of uh, fire, forest fire, which we're not. You, you, I think, still might be. But um, but that anxiety is kind of like extremely always present. How are you? How's the air? I mean, I don't know because I don't go outside. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks like the air quality right now is moderate, but I'm still not going outside. <laughs> there's there's no reason for that. I mean, outside is is regular colored now. So that's good. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. No, no fires here. Um, like exactly where I am physically. I'm sure there are fires uh, elsewhere. But I mean, there's some figurative fires. Yes. Before we get to those figurative fires, I think um, we've got some people to thank. And so I really want to shout out the awesome support from Anna, from Case, from Christabel, Kieran, Rael, Karen, Arwen, Saima, Julia, Maddie, Kusha, and Jose. Thank you so, so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Okay, so what figurative fires have you been hearing about this week? Well, uh, I understand that the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which was hanging on by uh, the might to live of one 87-year-old woman, <laughs> uh, is now going to go to total shit. Is that, that seems like a bit of a fire, a figurative fire. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, is it going to go to total shit? Uh, likely. It is, <laughs> it is likely that the... The powers that be will nominate um, someone who is conservative to sit on the Supreme Court, and it is likely that they will try to push a political agenda through that, despite all of the training I'm getting right now, um, <laughs> saying that uh, the Supreme Courts aren't, aren't political. Supreme Court justices aren't political actors. They just interpret the law. Ah. Uh. Uh, no, uh, my, my education's a little better than that. There, it is critical. Um, and so, you know, we, there are some very 
obvious seminal cases uh, that make it clear that, yeah, of course, uh, the Supreme Court justices are political actors. And yes, um, uh, one of them who tended to be more on the liberal side, though not always, for those of you who don't know, I've read enough Ginsburg over the last year and a bit to know that, you know, she was often liberal, but not always. That voice is going to be uh, replaced, likely, by a conservative justice. And the conservatives already have a majority on the, the United States uh, Supreme Court. So this is just going to give them a stronger majority. Yeah, I'm looking forward to finding out if this person likes uh, the new appointee likes beer as much as Justice Kavanaugh, uh, through tears, yelled at his appointment hearings about how much he liked beer. <laughs> My favorite moment from that. I like beer. <laughs> it's like great moments in the U.S. in the U.S. Senate. I drink oh, beer. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to look up this video. Look up, look up Justice Kavanaugh and beer, and uh, and it's there. I mean, I feel like you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death is a really important moment for people on the left, on the on the real left, to remind ourselves of the limits of these structures and of these systems, and that oftentimes laws are going to be considered to be uh, fair, uh, even though they are not just. And we are always struggling against unjust laws, unjust laws. <laughs> and, um, and I think that Ginsburg became a symbol for a lot of people and uh, watching people's reaction to her death, you know, obviously knowing that this is a really important thing that's hanging over the United States. But it reminded me that, you know, we really shouldn't be idolizing anybody, really, and certainly not justices of a Supreme Court, because at the end of the day, we have to fight these people anyway. I mean, when we talk about defunding the police, when we talk about reforming um, the criminal justice or injustice system, abolishing prisons, I mean, justices are obviously a huge part of that. And, um, and in the United States, where they are seemingly more partisan than they are in Canada, I mean, it's part of the game, unfortunately. And uh, what will happen next? I mean, that is political theater. And I am happy that I uh, am only watching and not living in the United <laughs> States. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> geez. Yeah, I mean, there, I think um, the only thing that I really have to add to, to that is is that Man, there's just been a lot of uh, discourse that um, talks about how, man, like, if the Republicans do uh, appoint a Supreme Court justice right now or in the lame duck period, so post-election, pre-inauguration, pre, uh, <laughs> they will be hypocrites. That will be hypocritical. <laughs> they will be hypocrites. They they cannot yeah. do that without going back on their own logic because uh, they very effectively <laughs> prevented the Obama administration from doing something similar. And I'm just like, for everyone who's like mentioning that, like fucking David Frum made like some sort of um, weird tweet this morning that I was just like, man, like, welcome to 2016, I guess. It's like, Jesus. Yes. <laughs> yes. They are hypocrites. Yes. They've been called yep. that before. Yes. They don't give a shit. They are not playing by any rules 
that we are used to watching, okay? They don't give a fuck about any of the rules that even they help set up. They are playing the long game. And I've seen some people say, well, you know, they might they might hurt at the polls if uh, if they if they do this, you know, like uh, the the electorate might be upset at them. Let me be very clear. <laughs> the Republicans and conservatives in general, the right plays a long game. They will throw an election to get a Supreme Court justice. 100%. They totally would. (laughs) Even though that's clearly not what's going to happen. They would 100% throw an election to get a Supreme Court justice because they are playing a long game. All of the stuff that we're seeing now, as we've talked about before on this podcast, was very effectively um, sown back in the 70s, in the late 70s, early 80s. Like this isn't, none of this stuff is just coming out of nowhere. These are strategies that have been in place for a very long time. And that is part of the problem that we have on the left is that we we don't have long-term strategic actors, um, uh, um, you know, trying to do the same thing. And we're continuing to play within the rules when nobody else is playing that game with us, you know, mm. um, to make the game board analogy, but which is, which is, you know, I'm actually getting really annoyed at, at that analogy and I'm annoyed at myself that I used it because it's, it's too flip. It's too flippant, uh, to, to be, um, to honor, uh, what the stakes are of everything that's actually going on. Anyway, that's enough said about that. Yeah, but it does set the stage, I think, for tonight's conversation, which is related uh, to the role of the Supreme Court within the United States. I know there were a lot of Indigenous people and Indigenous activists who were reminding people that RBG's uh, rulings or statements around uh, Indigenous rights to land and different protests were inappropriate or whatever and I think that that is a good reminder of the limits of the state, the state that is built literally on top of genocide, on top of slavery, and on top of white supremacy, which is what we're talking about tonight. Um, and it's one of those it's one of those issues that I feel like we could probably make the whole podcast about. <laughs> but we uh, we we wanted to come back to this issue now because there's just so much happening in Canada that you absolutely need to know about. And we need to have the dots connected between these issues that sometimes may seem a bit disparate or, you know, sometimes if you say uh, that this is an issue of white supremacy, you might get someone online being like, no, it's not. Don't bring race into it or whatever. And um, we have to make sure our analysis is always accounting for how white supremacy and and racism manifest in so many of the issues that we are facing. Uh, Now, we're not talking about the throne speech, which will have been uh, either just coming out tomorrow or coming out had just come out, depending on when you're listening to the podcast. Uh, And so that will be likely next week. But the issues that we want to highlight tonight go far beyond that short game of, of, of partisan politics that Sandy was talking about. They are issues that uh, really do uh, go back to the, in some cases, the foundation of Canada and the lack of attention that these issues are receiving from the mainstream press, I think is what concerns me the most because then average people just don't even know or what they know is um, a very one-sided or or surface-level analysis of these issues. And so, Sandy, what are we starting with tonight? Nora, did you hear about uh, the Prime Minister, our beloved Justin Trudeau, announcing 
support for black people after this, you know, really intense year of unrest, where people have been demanding change and support for black communities. Did you did you see that he he's finally considered us and he's finally, you know, risen to the occasion? I did see that. And one little piece of uh, trivia, I actually personally know the minister who's responsible for it. I mean, we don't talk anymore, but I did know her at one point. Uh, Which one is this? Mary Ng. Oh, so did you talk to her about it? Did you say thanks for defunding the police? (laughs) Well, she's the minister of like small businesses and we haven't defunded the police enough to get them to be small businesses yet. Well, surely Justin Trudeau wouldn't have heard all of the unrest this summer and announced something for small businesses. (laughs) That seems... (laughs) Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but he has. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, but I think that that's his brand right now. <laughs> yeah, entirely. So if you are not in the know, the government, after all of everything that has happened um, this summer, and on top of like just generally the fact that Canada um, was, is, a state that treats black people poorly and engaged in enslavement and could probably do with, I don't know, uh, engaging in a reparations project along with the rest of the fucking Commonwealth um, that has to um, right the wrong of slavery, of enslavement against black people. Um, They have decided (laughs) to uh, create a, a specialized business loan program for black people, which, which sounds like a joke coming out of my mouth. Like it just sounds like some giant joke. The, the program is, it's meant to invest $221 million um, over a period of time to create Canada's first ever black entrepreneurship program. Yarg, I mean, like, could they do less? They could do less. They could always do less. (laughs) They could. They could totally (laughs) do less. (laughs) They could totally do less. Um, But they're very close (laughs) to doing the absolute least possible. This is this is not good. <laughs> it's not good. And you might be asking yourself like, yeah, this is like really fucked up, but is it white supremacy? Yes, dear listener, <laughs> it is. Um this this program, well first of all, I, you know, as I just mentioned, like the idea that that uh, you know, one of the first times that the government is even engaging directly with black people at the federal level, you know, they started doing that I think a couple of years ago when they made their first promise um which was to allocate uh I think it was 25 million dollars in mental health resources to the black community and then they didn't do it. Um, this this being their their kind of second uh, um, uh, acknowledgement of black people in in some sort of specific program, being a loan program, essentially being a debt accumulation program, and 
not just a debt accumulation program, because that is what it's going to happen uh, to to people, to some of the people certainly who take on this loan are going to um, have this debt uh, that they'll need to pay back, especially if their businesses are not, uh, whatever businesses that come out of this aren't um, successful. But also, uh, this is in partnership with Canada's financial institutions. So a number of those loans will be coming directly from Canada's for-profit banks. And so people, uh, like this program is not just a program that's debt accumulation. It is, it is explicitly a black exploitation program meant to benefit some of the highest profiteers in Canada, the banks. I like, it just doesn't get any fucking more fucked up than that. Well, it gets a little bit more fucked up than that because all of the money is coming from the banks because the program was promised to be, what, $200 million or something, $250 million, but only $33 million is coming from the federal government. And I heard um, Mary explain this, Minister Ng, uh, and, and it sounds as if that $33 million is actually not going to go to the businesses. That's the money that's going to go to community organizations to identify which businesses should then be able to have a debt, have a have a fast track to more debt from Canada's big, big banks. And, you know, we're talking about the big banks. They, they have billions and billions and billions in profits. Uh, the last year that I, I have on my mind, which I think was 2018, their profits were $36 billion. I believe last year it may have been slightly lower than that. But this is net profit, $36 billion, right? That's fucking nine zeros. And what what strikes me as being kind of like the cherry on top of this shit fucking sandwich, I mean, I'm going to just mix metaphors all night. Why not? Because that's what I do, <laughs> is that in the it's the middle of a fucking pandemic. I mean, like, is there any worse time to tell black Canadians to just go and be entrepreneurs right now? Like what business is thriving that is not already the business of extremely established millionaires and billionaires because we know they've made a lot of fucking money. And so it just seems like it's crass political opportunism right in time for the potential for an election, which I think now that Aaron O'Toole has COVID is not going to happen. And um, and the liberals know that, you know, people are going to be looking at their promises just like we did last week and like talked about this billion trees, two billion trees that they didn't plant. And then La Presse was like, "Ooh, I wonder what happened to that promise. And that became some new <laughs> news last week, <laughs> which was great timing. Yes. And, and so it, yes. it's it's like it's insulting, really, to black Canadians and black business people that, that that with the timing, the way that the system is working and and the the idea that that you will find liberation through debt. It's just like so many levels of fucked up that it only could have been imagined by a liberal, I'm going to have to say. Yep. Uh, God, like the, there's a litany of things that the government could have done to um to impact positively the black community, given what has uh, been agitated for over the last fucking decade, you know, and I'm just so appalled <laughs> that this bullshit program is what they've announced. And so that that's number one. It's mm-hmm. just story number one in our in our white white supremacy tour of Canada right now. 
Do you want to hear what story number two is? I would love to. I think I know because we planned this like 25 minutes ago, but I would love to hear again. <laughs> we did. We definitely did. <laughs> um, have you heard about what's going on out east? I have heard what's going on out east, and I am shocked and appalled in the classic, not at all shocked, uh, but still extremely appalled way that it's only on Twitter that I'm seeing this. I'm not seeing this from the mainstream press. Sandy, what is going on out east? Yeah, so out east, uh, the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq chiefs have declared a state of emergency around the violent responses that they are getting to uh, a Mi'kmaq rights-based fishery. So uh, there's a a constitutionally protected, like through the Supreme Court, um, Mi'kmaq treaty right to barter and trade resources, including fishing in the province of Nova Scotia. And some white folks out there are essentially... Um, complaining that the fact that the the Mi'kmaq community uh, has the ability to to fish is taking fish from the the fish farmers of no- Nova Scotia, and so what that has led to is a lot of threats, uh, some violence, like gunshot violence, uh, and 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 people essentially saying that they're going to force the the, the community to stop um, their fishing. And so uh, the, the chiefs have been forced to declare a state of emergency. Yeah, that's right. And I really, I want to shout out and get folks to check out the feed of the account Agent Indian, so Agent N-D-N on Twitter, because, um, and that's uh, at the Agent N-D-N. And their account is so shocking, illuminating, uh, important, and goes through all of the the issues. Um, It shows how few fishing boats and lobster traps that the Mi'kmaq fishers have like are operating or trying to operate and how many the white fishers are allowed to operate or forcing themselves into be able to operate. And I mean, it's just completely imbalanced. It's like overwhelmingly white. And um, and as you say, there's violence. It's escalating. There's a lot of threats being uh, thrown around on social media. And, you know, this goes just like so to the core, again, of what's wrong with Canada. And it's got uh, an element in it, um, in this issue, with something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about um, white people claiming black identity or in Canada, how often it's white people claiming indigenous identity. And, you know, over the years, there has been this phenomenon of, of what scholars call race shifting, which is, you know, basically what we were talking about. But they do this white people claiming indigenous ancestry to be able to get access to these hunting and fishing rights. And we see this uh, most notably in the Maritimes and in uh, in Quebec, in eastern Quebec, often people pretending or saying that they are, quote unquote, eastern Métis, which is not a, a, like a recognized group of people. And, you know, it's it's just so enraging because like. Obviously, like 
indigenous people have the rights and should have the rights to be able to have access to their land. Like, I mean, on the, on a moral basis. But then also, Sandy, as you mentioned, they have the access protected by the Supreme Court to be able to hunt and fish, uh, live in whatever possible way that they can that's traditional, considering like how brutal Canada has been to, to try and destroy various traditions and certainly tr- destroy access to be able to practice various traditions and, 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 and support local economies. And, um, and if you go through uh, Agent Indian's uh, feed, I mean, you'll, see, you'll literally see there's one, one set of photos that they posted this weekend saying that there's like, like hostility literally on the water, right? That there's, that there's settler boats, there's white people's boats on the water trying to intimidate Mi'kmaq fishers. And so like this should be national news. Like the, the fact that Johnny McDonald's fucking brass shitty head in Montreal was national news and that this is not not yet national news is just such an indictment on what is considered newsworthy in this country. Because I think, you know, from the perspective of the white media, it's like, oh, it's business as usual. These things happen all the time. You know, you can, we just had the 20th anniversary of Ipperwash and we just had the anniversary of Oka and, you know, Burnt Church and Wet'suwet'en. And so you can name all of these land or, or, or disputes related to access to, to land or access to resources. And it's just like, that's just the part. That's just Canada. That's just our story. And and white people are just so involved and so complicit in in maintaining poverty level life, um, maintaining poverty, maintaining uh, or refusing access to these industries. And it's just so disgusting and so frustrating. Um, and if you go to that account, if the agent, the agent Indians account uh, on their pin tweet is a whole bunch of ways that you can get further involved. You can donate money. There's a uh, really great uh, 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 journalists that are covering it. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on too, because the Algonquin's a barrier Lake are also in a similar dispute. I'm not sure, Sandy, if you've seen that, but it's over hunting rights. Um, and that's a nation uh, that is, uh, this territory is north of Montreal. It, I mean, what the fuck, Canada, white Canada who listens to this podcast, you might who might be in solidarity and, and showing their solidarity physically. And Land Back Lane, of course, uh, folks in, in, uh, in uh out out near Caledonia and in Mohawk territory. I mean fuck. <laughs> fuck. Fuck indeed. And uh you one of the the you know um the actors here that is um you know allowing this type of um uh, tension, this type of uh like terrorism against the Mi'kmaq community to to continue are the RCMP, you know, like the RCMP are present, the RCMP know what's happening. And they are, in fact, allowing people um, to go and, uh, and, and harass the, the and, and threaten, and to be violent, quite frankly, against uh, the Mi'kmaq community. And, uh, you know, that is a function of how the RCMP functions. And again, just makes me so upset about the types of moves that our federal government is making and the types of moves 
that uh, elected federal representatives are not making, uh, given how this type of problem continues uh, so often in Canada. Like the, the police are a part of it. The police are a part of what's happening um, in the East that has created uh, the conditions for the state of emergency because they do not see their role as uh, protecting Indigenous people. And in fact, um, their role is supporting the settlers who are trying to um, prevent them from living their way of life. And it's not just the RCMP. I mean, DFO agents are there too, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And so this goes back to like how, you know, we see we see police militarizing. I mean, there's been a lot of photos of military grade machinery being brought in to deal with this situation right now. Um, pictures of like armored vehicles being brought in on trucks or whatever heading towards the site. Um, and it's like the same thing that we saw in February with Wet Sowetan, which is still happening. I mean, it's still not resolved, of course, because the federal government preferred to use the RCMP than to actually, you know, negotiate and, and respect treaty and to and to not place communities into this these difficult situations in the first place. I mean, that's the whole magic of the federal government is they're just like, oh, it's just it's just industry. They just have to negotiate with the local leadership. And it's like you you fucking very well know that that's not actually how it works. And the only reason why you're saying that's how it works is because you're hoping for a whole fuckload of ignorant Canadians to be like, yeah, yeah, that's how that's how this works. And like when we're talking about defunding the police, like often, you know, because of the attention from the United States and because of the attention on individual acts of violence against black and indigenous people in this country, we we I don't think we talk enough about how the RCMP is the arm of the state, the violent arm of the state that continues to maintain colonialism in Canada, which is why it is so infuriating that we we have not had a federal discussion about defunding the RCMP, which is, of course, the only police body that the federal government directly could defund, right? Otherwise, we're talking about provincial or municipal forces, with, of course, the exception of border services, which, fuck, they also should be fucking defunded and fuck their union. And you can look up their union in my name if you want to know why I'm not so happy with them. But um, the, 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 the RCMP is absolutely the violent manifestation of current colonial rule. And, like, this is why it matters that the NDP won't call for defunding the RCMP. This is why it matters that we don't have, like, loud national voices outside of movements to defund or for abolition or for Black Lives Matter or or for Indigenous rights and, and, and activism saying we also we stand with with these folks and we also believe that the RCMP should be funded. I mean, that fucking piece of shit organization should not exist, period. And we we need to make those connections between the way that they violently enforce colonialism as being part of their core work. That's not that's not peripheral. That is literally their core job. Okay, that's number two. There's more. Turns out uh, that there is some pretty fucked up uh, hate activity on the rise um, in and around Toronto. On September 12th, Mohammed Aslim Zafis was murdered just outside 
the International Muslim Organization of Toronto Mosque in Etobicoke. Um, and this comes on the heels of the police say, stating that there's a uh, that the public should be on the lookout, on the aware, because it appears as though there's some hate motivated um, assaults happening in and around Toronto. I just want to be clear there that the police are issuing a public safety alert, but for some reason did not stop this from happening, didn't prevent it because the police are not good at that kind of thing. And we don't need to police to issue public safety alerts. Anyone else can do that. Um, but in any case, um, a public safety alert has been issued because of four uh, hate-motivated assaults in Toronto. And um, folks might be very surprised to hear about this uh, if they haven't been paying attention at all to anything that's been going on. But Canada operates as the epicenter for quite a few of the very active white supremacist groups across North America. There are a number of um, actors uh, that and agitators who are specifically uh, from Canada, who are part of the, the groups that you hear the most about, like whether it's the Proud Boys or, you know, the groups who, who went down to uh, Charlottesville um, some years ago. Uh, like the, there were Canadian uh, white supremacist groups that were involved in that. And so we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that this sort of thing is happening uh, in Toronto, uh, given where the discourse is right now in society and how things are are polarizing to the point where white supremacists are are becoming more and more encouraged uh, to actually uh, take action on their really heinous beliefs. That's right. And we have just watched two or three weeks in the United States of really scary levels of civil unrest uh, where people are protesting against police brutality and police violence. And there has been, uh, you know, white supremacists who have been protected by police to be able to kill uh, kill two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And um, and then the police killed uh, a, a left wing activist. I think he was identified as, as an anti-fascist activist uh, in Portland. Um, and so we hear these stories. I mean, in Canada, that's like going to no dominate the news way more than this stabbing at the mosque in Etobicoke. And so the, you know, Hank Izinga from Toronto Police, who, um, yeah, is the guy that's like, hey, everybody, there might be a serial killer. Watch out. Like as if that fucking <laughs> watch out for what? Right. Like carry bear spray with you because there might be a fucking serial killer trying to kill you. OK, thanks, man. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't even say that because bear spray is probably not even legal. But anyway. And so the the anti-hate network, um, which is a group of people that try and track some of these connections, because as Sandy says, there's so many strong connections and leadership connections with what's happening in the United States and Canada. They put out a press release, Yellow Vest Canada shared it, and some other prominent folks who watch this stuff um, shared it as well, saying that the police have charged someone with first degree murder. So, you know, this... This is an individual that the man who was killed was like the caretaker and it was a random, seemingly random attack. And so but someone's been charged with first degree murder, which suggests that the police know enough that there was some sort of planning behind this, but that they said that there was no motive at this time. 
But the anti-hate network uh, reported that this guy's social media feed was full of really hardcore right-wing stuff, including that he was either a member of or sympathetic to an organization called the Order of Nine Angels, which is an organization that's represented by a nine-pointed pentagram that uh, praises Hitler and particularly the side of Hitler that was occult. And so this is an organization whose adherents believe that they should be committing random acts of racist violence. Now, this, I think, um, you know, it's one thing for random acts of racist violence to happen, which, of course, we're not immune to in Canada. We've seen before. Um, Alexandre Bissonnette is obviously probably like certainly the person that I think of first um, when I when I think of random acts of racist violence, because, of course, he wasn't a member of an organization necessarily, but he was absolutely inspired by, uh, you know, the 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 Ben Shapiro's and the fucking Gavin McInnes's and the Ann Coulter's of the world. But the idea that there's a loose network of people who are probably like, you know, obviously willing to die or to go to jail for committing acts of random racial violence. I just feel like this is a new level. I feel like this is a a new level of threat. And I cannot believe that I haven't seen this be front page news anywhere. In fact, all I've seen is activists talking about what they've surmised from this guy's apparent social media feed. Yeah. And the the other thing that's disappointing about how this is not being talked about is that, you know, like I mentioned that the police are not good at preventing this type of stuff. But as society, we could come together to try to prevent some of this stuff or address it in a different way. We we absolutely should have some sort of strategy around white supremacist hate because it has been growing in popularity in this country over the last decade as you know and I'm not talking you know like I'm hoping that when folks hear me say white supremacist hate um, they're they're not hearing me say that white supremacy only appears in that way that's not what I'm talking about the entire system is white supremacist and I hope we all know that by now but this type of manifestation of white supremacist hate, this really violent, uh, really active um, attempts at uh, harming people, like there have been signs that this sort of thing was bubbling in Canada for a very long time. We've known about it. And uh, do we have a national strategy around this? No, we don't. And that, to me, um, makes no sense. I, I hazard a guess that part of the reason why there isn't a, a national strategy is because of the communities that are being impacted. And um, that's just not fucking good enough. And again, just makes me so angry to my core um, at what what the government is willing to take urgent action on. Like, yeah, okay, the WE Charity... 
is no longer, uh, you know, operating in Canada. The rest of it's like other 5,000 organizations called We Are, but whatever. The We Charity <laughs> has left Canada. And thank goodness for the government for taking such strong, swift, fast action on that. It's just like the things that they think are important are the things that seem to only be important to, to, to like, you know, like them and their peers, their peer group, like the uh, the elites of society. And it just is very clear to me. Um, it always has been, but I just feel like it's been put in stark relief this summer uh, that, you know, the government in Canada is for a particular brand of wealthy white folks. Mm-hmm. And not really for anybody else. Uh, otherwise, this would be a major issue and there would be um, uh, some strategizing around it from anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you say, like for the for the big announcement for black Canadians to have been about now you can get more loans like it really speaks volumes that connection between how white supremacy operates economically and how white supremacy operates then right down to these acute manifestations of the extreme far right and it's it's so funny to me that like you know under the logic of the government and whether it be the conservative government or the liberal government it's the same logic it's the police that are supposed to be the ones stopping this i mean the fucking police who we've just established are also the ones who are allowing for and and, and violently enforcing colonialism, like literally not possible. And, you know, CBC has been on this past week. um, the, The fact that the military has not done enough to root out white supremacist people or white supremacists or thought within within its ranks there is um there's been a couple of reports in this past couple of days about how strong white supremacy is in the canadian military and it's like oh my god how we get rid of it and it's like of course of course there is of course there is if you're a white guy that wants to fucking like be involved in racial holy war obviously you're gonna go to the state to train you on how to use fucking guns obviously that is so fucking obvious Except we never talk about it like that. Like the press talks about it as if, oh, this can be rooted out. Oh, we can stop white supremacists from getting into these positions of authority. And it's like, not only can we not, but we have a situation now in Canada where more often than not, the people engaging in violent activity were trained by the state, right? Like the guy that just drove across Canada with his fucking weapons to try and kill the prime minister was a member of the Canadian Rangers, which is like a a northern version of like part of the military. And we know that there was a guy who was involved with the base in uh, in Manitoba, which is a a far right paramilitary thing based in the U.S., who was in the Canadian military, an active member of the Canadian military. And so, you know, these 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 are all threads that we need to tug on and we need to understand the connection from one to the other and see that like white supremacy exists on this in this country on a continuum not on a continuum of what like hurts less and hurts more but like is like more insidious more woven into everything and then all the way to the extreme which is like these random acts of violence where the federal government is just like um yeah yeah actually you know what for for black canadians we're going to give you a loan system that's going to be our fucking one policy in the last two years. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. And so uh, why do we tell you all this? Just to make you even more upset at 2020? No, no, of course not. I mean, one, you should know about these things. And unfortunately, um, the powers that be are not um, reporting them widely. And so, you know, where the media fails, Nora and I uh, prevail <laughs> and try to <laughs> try to make sure that that folks know about this stuff. Um, but also we we have to be aware of what is happening around us in our world right now, where we are at. We need to like stare it in the face so that we can uh, address it and demand from folks in power that they address it. Because we, we can't forget, as we always say on this show, like all of this stuff is about power. The fact that these groups have been permitted to, to continue growing and thriving, despite the fact that we've known about them for years, is because of a failure of power or because the way that power operates doesn't give a shit about the way that these groups affect people like me. Okay, and that is just not fucking good enough. We have to uh, ensure that whomever we are giving power to in our society doesn't is is not able to ignore these types of um, of incidents happening, and that even if they don't ignore them, that the, that their engagement on these uh, on these incidents aren't just uh, going to a memorial that happens in Quebec City every year. It's not good enough to say, man, what a tragedy. If you were going to sit down and avert your eyes at the, the fact that this tragedy could happen again and again and again because of known groups that are organizing in Canada, there needs to be a strategy. There is no excuse for not taking the responsibility that the government has, that our representatives had, to try to do something to limit the impact of these groups and to, to root them out from their existence. Mm-hmm. 